right, turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. It can be found on page 998, 998 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 998, Titus 1, 10 through 16. Titus 1, here's verse 10. For there there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you would turn our hearts to receive it, turn our hearts to Christ, help us devote ourselves to your word, that we might live it out and proclaim it to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had to diagnose a problem or had to have something diagnosed, whether it was having a problem with a car that needed to be identified, whether you had to have your computer or phone diagnosed, or whether it was your own illness or injury or a child's that needed to get diagnosed. In sports, we needed to be aware of concussions. And oftentimes, we we do our own self-diagnosis. We look for signs and symptoms to figure out what it might be so that then we can best treat and fix the situation. And whatever it may be, of course, we we want to have a a good report. But we don't want want a bad diagnosis or a bad condition. But sometimes the most challenging thing isn't that we get good news or bad news. Sometimes the most challenging thing is that we don't know. We don't know what it is. And perhaps more importantly, what we want is an accurate assessment of the condition. Then we can deal with it. Then we can seek to resolve it or get the proper care or provision for it and then treat it. In our text this morning, one of the challenges that we face as Christians isn't necessarily the problems of our culture, the problems that are outside of us, but those within us. Paul has diagnosed the Crete, he's diagnosed the situation in Crete, he's planted various churches, There's a, they're spiritually healthy they are an established church. And he left Titus in charge of putting things in order to make sure they continue to grow, to be healthy and strong in the Lord. But there's just one problem. As was often the case with, with churches that were planted and established, the existence of false teachers and unhealthy doctrine would, would creep into the church like a cancer that would affect the entire body. 
And even in our own various studies of the New Testament and your, in your own reading of the New Testament, you recognize, we've recognized, that the, the existence and danger of false teaching was a common occurrence in the early church. Right? It just seemed to travel with the Apostle Paul wherever he went. And so, so even as we look at the problem of false teachers this morning, I'm not really saying anything new, but my hope is to stir you up by way of reminder so that we might identify diagnose and confront potential diseases, potential spiritual cancers that harm the health and body of Christ. For the purpose of being agents of transformation to those around us through intentional, Christ-like devotion to sound doctrine and good works. So first, false teachers, and you see this in your outline, false teachers have a destructive influence. False teachers have a destructive influence. Look, look with me at verses 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. As Paul begins to help us properly handle and correct error, we recognize right away the need for spiritual leaders in the church and the sense of urgency in having biblically qualified elders. After unpacking the qualifications for elders in 1, 5 through 9, which we've looked at in the past few weeks, and he ended in verse 9 with the duties of the elders, being able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and being able to rebuke those who contradict it, Paul now provides the reason or the basis for having godly leaders who can rightly handle the word of truth. Paul explains why we need proper leadership in the church. The reason is given in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. As we know, false teachers were prevalent in the first century. They would arise and seek to lead believers astray. And so now Paul addresses it here in this letter, and just as he does in most of his letters. And he begins by reminding Titus and the church that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The false teachers in this context are characterized by rebellion and deceit. And most of them were part of the circumcision party. They were Jews who claimed to be Christians. They claimed to follow Jesus and from Acts and Paul's other letters, we learn that they were requiring circumcision as necessary for salvation. This is one of the things that they were teaching. We're not sure exactly all that they believed or were teaching, but from the context, and this would apply to our own context as well, their doctrine reflected an incomplete grasp of the gospel. And it even distorted, they even had a distorted view of the gospel that was leading people astray. And in these verses, Paul elaborates on the false teacher's characteristics and traits. He says they're insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So Paul first describes them the way the children of the elders should not be characterized by. You recall back in verse 6, Paul said that the elder must have faithful children and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. To be insubordinate is to be rebellious. It speaks of wild, unruly, and an unwillingness to submit to authority. These false teachers who were prevalent in Crete rejected the authority of, of the apostles' 
and teaching. They were empty talkers and deceivers. They would teach, but there was no substance to their message. It was in vain. And though we're not certain if the, the opponents in Crete were the same as those in Ephesus, Paul addressed a similar situation in Ephesus in First and Second Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.6, we read this. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So there's vain discussion, empty talk. Their teaching was characterized by deception. They led others astray by what they taught. So not only was their teaching having a negative effect on themselves, but on the church as a whole. We see in verse 11, their deception was rooted in selfishness. It was a desire for dishonest gain, a desire for shameful gain, a desire for money. They were upsetting whole families, ruining, disrupting, destroying entire households. They had a destructive influence. What, was, what should have been intended to teaching that should build others up was actually tearing families apart. And what they taught led people astray, and what they taught ruined families as well. It's common, even still today, that false teachers will twist and distort the gospel and the Bible as a whole for the sake of their own financial gain. This still happens today. We could obviously think of the heresy today being the health and wealth prosperity gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I had a relative that once fell into this trap. She was promised physical health and financial security and riches if she just sent a certain amount of money to their organization. I'm sure it was more subtle than that. False teachers will often mask their teaching with biblical language, but actually go beyond the teaching of Christ with some new, innovative message that will sell. It will draw large crowds. People might think, this is a sign of God's blessing. Large crowds are coming. It's a sign of God's blessing. And then the church might begin to think, are we doing something wrong? So what do we do? First, you hear me say all the time that you can detect a counterfeit when you know and study the real thing. Second, we should have proper leadership established in our church, in local churches, we seek to raise up spiritual leaders in churches. Ephesians 4, Christ gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Why? Verse 14, Ephesians 4, 14, so that we may no longer be children to, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And third, in verse 11, Paul exhorts Titus and the church, in verse 11 here, that it's necessary to silence them. The proper response and handling of error is to be built up, to not give in, and here specifically, to silence those who are deceiving the body of Christ. 
It was by their teaching that they were misleading people away from the truth in God's word, and they must be silenced. We must confront those who deceive, those who disrupt, those who have a destructive influence. This is what we are called to do as believers. Second, false teachers turn away from the truth. False teachers turn away from the truth. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We're probably all familiar with stereotypes, common generalizations, and they can, they can be harmful and damaging, but in some cases they can expose what may be true in a particular setting or context. I, I looked up some this week, some various stereotypes that are out there, and you probably know way more than I do. They're an oversimplified way of describing someone or something but not necessarily true, all right? I want to clarify, not necessarily true. All right, let me give you a few. You could probably even finish these sentences. Police officers buying coffee and donuts. Men don't ask for directions. Definitely can't multitask. At least, maybe that's just me. I can't multitask. Women are bad drivers. You heard that stereotype? Jocks are not intelligent. Blondes are ditzy. Pastors' wives play the piano. New Englanders, I don't know if there's any New Englanders here. All right, I had New Englander friends in, in Louisville. They would say this about themselves even. New Englanders are rude, stubborn, and blunt. Italians, I'm an Italian, so I can say this. Italians are loud, I'm pretty loud, talk with their hands, and always eat pizza and pasta. There there are many stereotypes for Americans. The positive ones include hardworking, optimistic, generous. The negative ones include obese, materialistic, and arrogant. So we, we recognize that the reality of, of overgeneralizations in, in our own culture and that, that people have used to, to understand a particular class or society or a certain setting. And in various places that Paul traveled, he probably noticed general tendencies and noted what people said about the places that they lived. Now, that's what, that's what he does here. He, he mentions how one prophet of Crete described the stereotype of, of Cretans. Here's the generalization of, of Cretans, which Paul says is actually a true statement. Scholars believe that the prophet that Paul was referring to was Epimenides. This was back in the 6th century B.C., in which he indicted the Cretans for their view of Zeus. He immortalized the Greek god, of, Greek god Zeus, but the Cretans, you recall, and I mentioned this in the intro to our series in, in Titus, here's what the Cretans had said about Zeus. They were notable for retelling the story of Zeus 
and claimed that he was born and died on Crete. And so there, there was a poem that scholars say was from Epimenides about Zeus. Listen, listen, to, what the, listen to this hymn, this poem. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. Have you heard that before? Acts 17. For in him we live and move and have our being. This, this prophet of Crete would say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You see, to, to be a Cretan was to be a liar or a deceiver. It's been said that Cretans regarded lying as culturally acceptable. To, to be a Cretan was to be a liar. The Cretans were evil beasts. They were rude and wild people. They acted like barbarians in their war tactics, like pirates on the sea routes. They were lazy gluttons. They lacked self-control. Instead, they were controlled by their own passions and desires. They had a reputation for being unethical. And Paul says that this testimony is true. So, so what's he observing here? What do we learn from this? Paul's concern is not so much about the culture or the reputation of the Cretans in society or their character. His primary concern is that with the teaching and behavior of these Cretan Jewish so-called followers of Jesus. You see? They were characterized by deception in their teaching. And their actions were in step with with the cultural generalizations around them. The false teachers taught and acted no differently than what was true of the society and the cultural setting, the stereotypes of the people in Crete. And the response that Paul gives to Titus and the church is that they needed to be rebuked sharply. The rebellious teachers needed to be confronted for their unhealthy teaching and their Cretan lifestyle. So Paul says in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. Whether Paul specifically has in mind the, the false teachers, these rebellious teachers, or even those who have been deceived and given in to false teaching, they need to be rebuked sharply. This was one of the duties that we saw of the elder in verse 9. He is to give instruction in sound doctrine, and he is to rebuke those who contradict it. We are to rebuke sharply, which, which means to expose, to bring to light, to correct, to convince someone of their error. Why? That they might turn away from their error, that they might see it and repent of it. And here specifically, that they might be sound in the faith that they might be restored. The purpose of confronting those who have wandered is not to condemn them, but to compel them to return to Christ, to lead them back to sound teaching. Maybe you know someone who has wandered from the truth. Whether it's in what they're believing 
or in how they're living, maybe the Lord might use you to bring them back to sound teaching so that they might see their error and be restored. Perhaps you're not sure what you do or what you say or how to approach the situation. Consider Nathan's rebuke of King David in 2 Samuel 12 when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan confronts him on it and he uses a story. Do you remember this story? He uses a story to expose his error. Sometimes it takes a story or an illustration. Sometimes it takes bluntness and just calling it out. And it led David to say, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the goal. Our goal is to restore them in the faith so that they might be sound and healthy again. We also see here what Paul means when he says that they must be sound in the faith. What he has in mind is that they won't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These false teachers, in what they were teaching, were devoting to Jewish myths and not the Bible. Perhaps they were trying to accommodate the Cretan culture or dabbling into myths and invented stories to entice their listeners. Perhaps trying to make the message of the Bible more attractive and appealing. You can imagine the danger of this. Imagine our own culture. An obsession in which we're obsessed with health, wellness, free from suffering, and materialism. Okay, so if I were to put our stereotypes on our own culture, imagine our culture obsession with health, wellness, free from suffering, and materialism. What sort of message would you expect to accommodate an American culture and make it more attractive and appealing? Some of the things we hear today. Some of the things that we hear today. Think about this in Cretan culture. With the addition of invented stories to entice their listeners, right? So so they're inventing these stories, these these Jewish myths that were circulating. And then they're proclaiming the Bible as well, right? So the Bible that we proclaim that unfolds God's plan of salvation in Christ and the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners would then be viewed by those in Crete as speculative, untrue, another made-up story by people. It thus would destroy the credibility of the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God to the people around them. Well, it's just another made-up story. This happens still today. I'm sure you could think of cases in which people try to make the Bible more attractive to unbelievers. Certain things sell better than others. So why not give the people what they wanted to hear? Right? That happens today. When the call to Christianity is a call to suffer and die and deny oneself and take up his cross, take up our cross and follow Jesus. I was actually thinking about this earlier. The story of the transfiguration. 
right? You see Jesus transfigured before the people. Do you know what comes right after that? That's not happening. I have to go through a cross first. No, no, no. That doesn't sell. There's a sense, even as Paul writes this letter to Titus in the church, which challenges us to not be conformed to the culture, the cultural norms, and to teach us to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught and leave the result to God. Have you ever thought about that? To, to not wander from the truth, but to remain steadfast and devoted to God's word so that then our lives will reflect the truth of the gospel to those around us. That's what's attractive. Third and finally, false teachers profess to know God but deny him by their works. Verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The false teachers, the problem with the false teachers isn't just that they're teaching wrong, unhealthy doctrine, but it's also their lifestyle. We've seen that already. They're characterized by a Cretan society, a Cretan culture. The problem is their behavior and their actions don't line up with God's word. So Paul contrasts two groups of people, the pure and then the defiled and unbelieving, which likely highlights the, the error and teaching they were imposing upon Christians. Something to be considered pure or defiled, clean or unclean, is tied back to the Old Testament. And so what we, we picture here is these Jewish Cretans were declaring, potentially, declaring certain foods or certain practices unclean, and therefore they must be avoided. We see a parallel in 1 Timothy 4. Their consciences are seared and forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So it's possible this is one of the problems of the false teachers. They may have been, in, they may have been forcing Christians requirements that were not necessary, supposing that these things were impure or defiled. And in doing so, they're the ones that are actually defiled and impure and unclean. They were rejecting the gospel message by, by adding to it. They were the ones who were corrupted in their minds and in their consciences. And Paul describes them as defiled and unbelieving. Now, how can we know this? How can he call them unbelieving? Two reasons. They number one, they teach a different gospel. They teach a message that is divisive and deceptive. They distort the gospel in some way, whether they're adding to it or removing things from it. Number two, their actions deny the gospel. Notice verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. How do we know if someone really knows God? 
How can Paul say they are unbelieving? Their actions deny the gospel. A person's actions reveal what's in their heart. A person's behavior serves as an indicator of the heart. We recall Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, when he said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. We know a tree is an apple tree by the fruit that it bears. Even though they profess to know God, their actions reveal that they don't belong to God. They don't have a relationship with God. One's actions, therefore, must line up with one's profession. And in fact, I think just as important, by implication, is that one, someone who truly knows God and is in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they will be characterized by bearing fruits and they will be transformed and fit for good works. That's what Paul expects. Because this was one of the purposes for which Jesus died. This is what we see in Titus 2. Our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul reveals that those who know God will be characterized by sound doctrine and a devotion to good works, not as the basis for one's right standing with God, but as the overflow, as the overflow of the heart that has been transformed by God. So what we are seeking, what we are seeking is not behavior modification. We're seeking gospel transformation that flows from a new heart. And God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as we reflect upon, as we've reflected upon the problem of false teachers, we must identify their existence and their danger so that we can protect the church from, from believing a false message, right? Whether it's legalism or licentiousness. And might our actions give testimony and credibility to the good news that we proclaim concerning Jesus. Our actions should display Christ transforming our heart. Let's abound in the work of the Lord. And where we see our behavior looking more like Cretan culture or American culture, more so than the fruit of the Spirit, let's confess that to God and ask Him for forgiveness. Let's devote ourselves to God's Word so that we might unify and build up the body of Christ making us fit for good works. And let's hold fast to the promises of God as Christ holds fast to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for faithful teachers, faithful spiritual leaders, even in our own church. 
We thank you of the families that are here, that are devoting themselves to God's word, to your word. That are seeking to know it, study it, and live by it. They're holding fast to, to sound doctrine. They're living out the gospel to their friends, to their neighbors, to their coworkers. And I pray that you would continue to help us build one another up. That we might protect ourselves and be protected from false teaching. That we wouldn't give in to the influences in our own culture, our own society, even in what we teach because we think it might sell or draw a large crowd. Help us remain true to your word. And in that, we leave the results to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.